Good morning, Tyler Town Church. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of John, chapter 15. Uh, John, chapter 15, that's where we're going to be today. We're continuing our sermon series entitled, He Is, where we've been walking through the book of John over the past uh, couple months. Well, as Pastor Greg said earlier, uh, I am not Pastor Urban Wassley. He's preaching down at our Sango campus. That was, you know, it's probably a little obvious, but I'm not Pastor Urban. He's down there. He's filling in for Pastor Derek. But my name is Benjamin Scott. I'm a deacon here at Tylertown Church, and uh, I get the privilege every now and then to fill in for Pastor Irvin, and so I'm really excited to be preaching here this morning. I'm really excited to be looking at this passage, John 15. Uh, I was able to speak about a month ago, and if you were here for that, you know, I shared about how much I love the book of John. Uh, the book of John is just, if you're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorites, but if you are, book, the book of John is definitely one of mine. It's one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible. And to give a little bit of background about, you know, the book of John, we've talked about this a lot under, under Pastor Irvin, but it, it's structured in a very unique way from the other Gospels. It doesn't really just try to tell a, you know, day-by-day story of Jesus's life. It's, it's structured uh, a little different. It's structured about, around signs and statements, really. That's, that's the best way to put it, signs and statements. Seven signs from Jesus that he is God, the Son of God, that he is, you know, deity, and then seven statements from Jesus about who he is, which is where we got the uh, the title of this sermon series, He Is. And so today in John 15, we actually get to look at that final statement from Jesus about who he is, that final I am statement from Christ. And a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 13 on Father's Day, and Pastor Irvin preached about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And immediately after that, you know, Jesus and the disciples head into what's known as the Last Supper. It's Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he dies, before he sacrifices himself. And even last week in chapter 14, Pastor Irvin preached about how Christ tells his disciples, he's like, look guys, I don't have much longer. I'm about to be gone. I'm about to leave you all. And so it really kind of follows suit that what we're reading from Christ in in chapter 15 and even 16 are, are kind of his final words to his disciples. It's the last things he has to tell his disciples before you know, he sacrifices himself. And if these are Jesus' last words to his disciples, I don't know about you, but I think they're probably pretty important. right? Everything in the Bible is pretty important, but especially these, these last words, these are the things that Jesus really wants his disciples to remember before he's gone. And so we see him here in chapter 15 leave his disciples with, with a clear command. All right, so let's go ahead and turn to John 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. The verses will be on the screen as well. But John 15 says, this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Will you pray with me, church? 
Father God, I come before you this morning asking that you would use a broken vessel, God, a, a unworthy messenger to proclaim the word that you have to preach this morning. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would just descend and would fill this room, God, that uh, we would approach these next few moments with open hearts, with open minds, that you would search us, you would try us, Lord, and um, God, that we would leave here different from the way that we came in. Uh, Father, hide me behind your cross. I love you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So my, uh, my day job is a high school English teacher. Um, so don't be too jealous, but I am in the middle of summer break, and I'm really loving that. But as a high school English teacher, one of my absolute favorite things to teach is imagery. Right? I'm very much an, an English nerd. I love all aspects of the English language, but I really love literature. I love literature, and I love having the opportunity to teach literature. I know some of you are thinking back to your high school English classes, and you're like, oh my goodness, here we go. But no, I mean, some of my students are the same way, but I love literature, and I love getting to teach imagery. I mean, imagery... Essentially, it's the use of descriptions. It's the use of vivid descriptions that can help explain something or get a thought across more clearly and in more depth than just plain, technical, straightforward, facts-only language can. And I say that because the book of John is full of imagery. I think that's another reason it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's full of imagery, of various analogies or metaphors or symbolisms or different themes. And we look at the life of Christ, right? Jesus Christ the greatest ever teacher to walk the earth, how did he get his messages across through imagery? Right? Rarely do we see Christ deliver some theological concept without using some form of imagery, whether it be a parable. Right? He always taught in parables, stories that would get across his message. Or, as we see here in John 15, through some metaphors. Right? John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Man, and those, just those few words, there's so many deep, rich, theological concepts that Jesus Christ gets across. A perfect picture is painted in your head about what Christ is talking about. And so what we see here is through this, the use of this allegory, this, this metaphor, if you will, Christ is delivering some, some serious truths about a few things. And that's what we're going to focus on. He talks about the nature of God. Right? The nature of God, both God the Father and God the Son. We see him talk about what God does for us, the branches. And then we see him talk about how we, as the branches, should respond, how we should live in light of those truths. So we're going to walk through those three things today, this morning, as we work through John 15. So let's start with the nature of God. What does John 15 say about the nature of God? Well, we see verse 1 begins with those famous words from Jesus Christ, I am. I am. And whenever we read those two words together in Scripture, I am, we should really kind of, you know, sit up, listen up, pay attention, really focus on what Christ is about to say because we know that it is important and it has some severe implications for us. He says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. In verse 5 he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in those, those two short verses we see some serious truths about the nature of God. About the nature of God. But why does Jesus say, I am the true vine? Right? Why does he say, I am the true vine, instead of just saying, I am the vine at the very beginning? Well, if you open up the Bible and you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you read all the way from Genesis to the book of John, 
John 15 is not the first time that you're going to see a metaphor used about a vine or a vineyard and a vine dresser. Actually, as a matter of fact, the Old Testament used this imagery quite often. The Old Testament is full of references to a vine or to a vineyard. But in the Old Testament, when we see a vineyard being discussed or a vine being discussed, it's actually being used as a symbol for Israel, a symbol for Israel, who is supposed to be God's first vine. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1, and then we'll jump down to verses 5 through 7. So Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So again, we have this metaphor introduced. It's God speaking about his vineyard, and his vineyard is supposed to be Israel. And in the verses between verse 1 and verse 5, we see this vineyard was planted, and it was supposed to produce these grapes. The grapes went sour. The grapes were bad. The vineyard was worthless. And so verse 5 picks up, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is God speaking. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This is pretty heavy. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, Israel was supposed to be the vine, the vineyard that produced fruit, that brought glory to God, but it ultimately fell short. So Christ has come, and what Christ is telling these disciples, who knew very well what that analogy, what this illustration meant, he says, I am the true vine, the vine that's never going to fall short, the vine that's never going to fail to produce fruit through us, the branches, and thereby bring glory to God. What, is he, what he's saying is he, he is our source, right? If we're going to glorify God in our life, he's the true vine to which we have to turn. He's our source of life, right? Life is another one of those themes repeated all throughout the book of John. Chapter 1, talking about Jesus, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of man. Last week, Pastor Irvin preached about Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. As the true vine, he's our source of life. He's our source of truth, right? In, in a world that tells us that truth is dead, that truth is, is non-existent, aren't you glad we have a source that we can turn to for truth? He's, he's our source for everything good. He's the true vine who's never going to fall short. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verse 17, that says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of light, in whom there is no shadow or change. He is our source. He is the true vine. But Christ doesn't just say that he is the true vine. He doesn't just speak to his own nature as God the Son. He speaks to the nature of God the Father. He says his Father is the vine dresser, right? A a gardener, essentially. The one who tends to the vines. And in so doing, Christ explains how God tends to his branches. That's us. How God the vine dresser tends to his branches. And in these verses, we see three primary ways that God interacts or that God tends to his branches, three things that he does. First, we see that sometimes God, he removes some branches. He removes some branches. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's heavy stuff. But see, here Christ is talking about the branches, the people, if you will, who choose not to remain or who choose not to abide with the vine, right? In this, in this metaphor, in this imagery, the branches to which Christ is referring, they are dead branches. They're dead. They're worthless. They cannot produce fruit, just as the people to whom Christ is referring are those who are spiritually dead, those who have rejected the true vine. This sounds harsh, but our God is a just God. Our God is a just God. He wants justice, just like Isaiah told us earlier. And those who decide, those who choose not to follow Christ, like the dead branches, are are gathered up, and as the text says, they're burned. Right? They're burned. This, again, it reflects an Old Testament passage. Ezekiel 15, once again, using this metaphor of the vine and the vineyard, tells us, it says, literally, that a dead branch is useful for one thing. Common sense tells us that a dead branch is useful for one thing. It's to be burned. It's firewood. So the dead branches, they're gathered up. They're thrown in the fire and and they're burnt. And people don't like that, right? No one wants to hear that. People don't like the exclusivity of the gospel. Man, we live in a world where to, to claim that something is exclusive is like, oh, no, I don't want any part of that. No one wants to hear anything about you know, Christianity being the only way. I can accept that Christianity is one of the ways, but is that what Christ says? He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth. No, he's the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. And those who reject Christ as the true vine are not going to be met with the same judgment as those branches who remain in him. So we see that the father, the vine dresser, he removes some branches. Second, we see that he lifts up some branches. He lifts up. Let's read verse 2. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now as I read that, you're probably thinking, okay, cool, but what in the world does that have to do with lifting up? Right? There's nothing mentioned about lifting up in there. And at first glance, I'm with you, it seems, it seems to be, that first half of the verse seems to be referring to the same branches as, as he's talking about in verse 6. But just bear with me for a moment, right? If, we, if you dive deeper into the original Greek in this, in this verse, right? I'm a lover of language, so that's what I do. I like to look at the original, the original language in which it's written. If you dive into the original Greek, we see a, at least a potential alternate meaning, right? I am no Greek scholar. I'm not one of the greatest thinkers on earth, but I, in doing my research, I learned from a lot of people who are among the greatest scholars of the Bible. And there's a potential alternate meaning to the, to the word that we translate as take away, or as some of your, your versions of the Bible may say, is the word that says removes, right? See, that comes from the Greek word airo, A-I-R-O, it's airo. And by far, the most common translation of that Greek word, iro, is not take away or remove. It's actually to lift or to raise up. We see a lot of examples throughout Scripture of that being the same thing. For example, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the disciples, they go around and they iro, or they lift up, they take up the leftover baskets. In the book of Matthew, Christ tells us to iro our cross daily, to take up our cross daily. Daily, And that may be what Christ meant, and he may have meant the other way, but I want to at least discuss this potential translation because I find it so encouraging. By the way, in verse 2, we see Christ is talking about, he says, every branch in me. 
So logic follows suit. He's not necessarily talking about branches that are just dead. But if we follow the metaphor, the illustration, a little bit further, in the first century, vine dressers, uh, grapeyard, the vineyards, part of the preparation for the season of growth was that the, the vine dresser would walk through the vineyard, look for branches that were hanging low, that were near the ground and in danger of not producing fruit, and literally lift them up and tie them onto the vine so that they could produce fruit. He would lift them up and tie them to the vine so that they could produce fruit. And if we read verse 2 with that translation, man, is that encouraging. Right? When we, when we find ourselves in a season, we're just like, man, God, I'm trying, but it's just not working out. God, I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't feel close to you. I feel like I'm falling short time and time again. Thank God that he doesn't just cut us off and say, well, that's it. You've fallen short. We just sang a song about the grace and mercy and love of God. He is the vine dresser who walks alongside us when we're struggling, when we fall short and says, that's okay. You know what? I'm with you. Let me lift you up and tie you back to the true vine. So we see that sometimes he does remove, but sometimes he lifts up. And sometimes we see that he prunes. God, as the vine dresser, he prunes. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And we have to be careful when we read this. I think we have to be really careful because the vine dresser doesn't punish, he prunes. He doesn't punish, he prunes. And I think we can get those two words mixed up because pruning isn't indicative of us doing something wrong. It's not indicative of us doing something wrong, of us not being connected to the true vine. As a matter of fact, it says directly the opposite. Pruning is indicative of us living our life right, of us being connected to the vine. He says only those branches which are already producing fruit are going to be pruned. Of course, Sometimes that pruning is going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. It's not something that we want to go through. And it might, it might even seem like punishment, but we're told here that's not the case. I'm reminded of James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. You've probably heard them before, but James tells us, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfast, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, it's hard to count it as joy when bad things come your way. Right? It's hard to be happy to, to see some good when bad things are happening, when you're going through various trials. And I'm going to be honest, the only way that I know how anyone could possibly do that is to realize that God could be using those things to prune you, to, to draw you near to him, to help you grow in Christ. I live a pretty easy life, I'm not going to lie. I've always lived a pretty easy life. I'm very blessed by God. But even, even in my own life, I can look back at times where God has allowed certain things to happen in my life, and I'm like, man, what is going on here, God? Like, How could this be any good for me at all? And now I can look back and see how he used those things to prune me, to allow me to grow. It doesn't mean that I enjoyed them. It doesn't even mean that, looking back, that I'm even particularly happy that those things happened. But I can see how I grew through those things, not just you know grew as a person, but grew closer to the Lord through those things. And by the way, you know, bad things happening, that's not the only way that God can prune us. 
right? This right here prunes you all the time. If, if you're spending time in the Word, man, you want to talk about pruning and preparing for this sermon over the past couple weeks, I have been really pruned. I've been made very uncomfortable by studying these verses because I look at myself and I'm like, man, I'm that, I'm that vine that's fallen short. I'm that vine that's fallen short time and time again. And his word prunes us. It builds us. It helps us grow. He's talking about the concept of sanctification here, right? It's that continual process of God molding us, of making us more like him, of him setting apart, literally setting us apart to be more like him. And again, it's got to be clear, this is something promised to all believers, right? From, From the youngest Christian in here to the most mature saint in the room, we all need to be pruned. We all need to be pruned because without God's pruning, without the vine dresser's work in our lives, we'll never produce fruit, right? Like a branch that's never pruned is never going to be fruitful again. We as Christians, without the vine dresser's pruning, aren't going to produce fruit. And, and ultimately, that's our call as Christians, to abide in the vine and produce fruit, which brings me to the final point I have for today in John 15, the final truth we see Christ discuss how we should respond to the nature of God and to the pruning in our lives. And I have to make it very clear that this response, it's twofold. It's a twofold response. There's two things clearly discussed by Christ. However, it's sequential. Okay, If you don't have the first, you're never going to get to the second. You can't jump ahead to the second and skip over the first because that's not how it works. It, ha- it has to go one then to. And so the first thing we see that we should do as Christians, it's really simple. It's Christ's number one command in this passage, abide in him. Abide in him. As a matter of fact, if I had to condense this whole entire sermon, this whole entire passage down into, into three words, it'd be those three words right there. Abide in him. In these eight verses alone that we just read, Christ commands us six times He tells us six times to abide in him, just in these eight verses. And those three words are so powerful. They carry so much meaning. First, he says, abide. What does it mean to abide, right? That's that's a bit of a weird word. People don't really use that very often. I don't think I've been hanging out with Brother Ross and just throwing out the word abide. Like, you know, it's just just something that we regularly say. It's, It's a weird word. It's really archaic language. Some of the translations of the Bible that you use might use the word remain or reside is one that is occasionally used personally. I love to throw in the word dwell. I think dwell is a great word that is thrown in there. But when Christ says to abide, it's a very, very important word. He wants us to live in him, right? If you're abiding in something, you're living in it. He wants us to live in him. Just as Christ is the true vine who gives us life, he wants us to give our life back to him. He wants us to give our life back to him. What he's talking about here, essentially, it's, it's discipleship, right? It's discipleship. He, he's talking about daily seeking his face and serving him, living in light of his love. And what he's really emphasizing here is that it's continual action. It's continual action. Think about that word abiding or residing or dwelling, you know. That's not something you do one time and then that's it. You don't just reside somewhere once. You're like, okay, well, I resided. Now I'm done. No, it's, it's continual. You're always abiding somewhere. You're always residing. You're always dwelling somewhere. And so the call for Christ is to abide in him, to daily walk with God. You see, I think that, I think that we like to kind of pick and choose. Uh, some of us in here, I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as y'all. We'll say, yeah, God, I'll abide in you. 
when it's convenient. God, I'll, I'll abide in you as long as I'm not too busy. Say, I'll, I'll abide in you, God, until another Christian hurts my feelings. I'll abide in you until something else comes up on Sunday morning. Here we go. I'll, I'll abide in you until football season starts back up. I mean, we laugh, right? But how true is it? We've, we've all done it. We've all, we all make excuses. We're great. We are, humans are great at making excuses for why we're not abiding. But let me tell you something, church. We're all abiding in something. Right? Whether it's Christ the true vine or something else, you cannot help but be abiding, but be living in something. And Christ calls us to abide in Him. He makes it simple. He doesn't add any conditions. He doesn't add any qualifiers. What's He say? He says, abide in Me. Abide in Me. doesn't matter what's going on in your life. Abide in Me. Life sucks? Abide in Me. Work sucks? Abide in Me. Your family's falling apart? Abide in Me. It doesn't matter what's going on. Abide in him. There's no end to the Christian walk as long as we're here on earth. A great pastor, Matt Chandler, he puts it this way. He said, we are called as Christians to give Christ all our life for all our life. I think that's such a beautiful way to put that. A beautiful way to put that. We're not called to abide in work, abide in family, abide in self, abide in church traditions, abide in... We're not even called to abide in doing good things. We're called to abide in... Him. And, so, and so how do we do that, right? How do we abide in Christ? Well, there's no cookie-cutter, you know, three-step plan to abiding in Christ, but I think there are certain things that each of us in here should ensure that we're doing that, that, that will help us abide in Christ, right? So simple things like walking by faith, right? Walking by faith, not trying to do everything on our own, but turning our, our life over to Christ, trusting in Him to guide us. Simple things like spending time dedicated in prayer, spending time in the word. In verse 7 here, Christ says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right? Christ is urging us to spend so much time in his word that it just becomes part of who we are. Man, talk about pruning. That's pruning right there. If my words abide in you. When was the last time you dedicated yourself to studying God's word and really trying to memorize a verse of scripture, really trying to take in and and meditate on a word from God. What he's talking about here, you know, if you want to abide in him, spend daily time just meditating on it. When I think about a picture of someone who abides in Christ, I think of Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, the the first three verses, again, there's some beautiful imagery in here. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's not abiding in those things. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, like the tree in Psalm chapter 1, it's only when we really meditate on God's word, when we're spending dedicated time with Christ, that we begin to bear fruit. Which brings us to the final point, the final call. How should we respond as Christians to what Christ has said? We see that we're called to bear fruit. We're called to bear fruit. Christ makes it very clear here in these verses that those who abide in him are are, are expected to bear fruit, to produce fruit. I mean, after all, that that is our primary creative purpose here on earth. 
We were created to glorify God, to to praise God, to worship God. And how does Christ say we do that in verse 8? It's pretty clear. By this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. But don't get it mixed up. Like I said earlier, it has to be abide in me, then bear fruit. You can't force the bearing fruit without having the abiding first, right? Bearing fruit, it's not, it's not going to save us. No, it's not going to save us at all, but it's still expected, right? Just like James tells us that faith without works is dead, so too Christ says that a branch that isn't producing fruit, that isn't bearing fruit, that continually fails to produce fruit, is worthless. So we're called to bear fruit. Just like a healthy branch is expected to produce fruit, that's the nature of a healthy branch. The nature of a Christian that is abiding in the true vine is to produce fruit. And you may say, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better worker, a better friend, a better fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. And abide in Him, and then that fruit will start to show in your life. Abide in Christ. You, You want to... Show more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which, by the way, I hope everyone in here wants to show more of those things. Abide in Christ. Abide in Him. You can't force it. You see, I think sometimes we get this concept that if if I can just do enough good things for God, He'll be proud of me. If I can just do enough, God will be proud of me, and I'll be good to go. But, man, that's, that's that's not how it works. Abide in Him and the fruit comes after. You can't manufacture that fruit on your own. That's not the call. When you're doing that, you're trying to work your way to heaven, right? That's, that's what we sometimes do. We fall into a legalistic attitude of, oh, I'm just going to follow all the rules. I'm going to do all these right things for God. And I'm going to work my way to heaven. Man, that's not it. Surrender your life to Christ. Abide in Him daily. Abide in Him. And that fruit, it's going to come. It's not going to be what's going to save you, but it's going to come. It's going to prove your disciple, just as it's the nature of a vine to bear actual fruit, it's the nature of Christians to bear spiritual fruit. That can only come if we're abiding in Jesus Christ, the true vine.